0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkinginGrace.org/media. Matthew chapter 26 is where we are this evening in our study of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 26. We read tonight, beginning at verse 17. We'll read. Verse 25, Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm keeping the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is going, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Surely not I, Rabbi, Jesus said to him, you yourself said it. Go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, tonight we have sung of your grace to us. And we know from your word, from our own faith in the gospel, from our own experience of salvation, we know Your grace. And yet, Lord, the longer we live and the more we know the truth and the more we know ourselves, the more we are acutely aware of the fact that salvation must be all of grace or else we would perish. When we consider all that sin is and all that we are apart from Christ, we know that our only hope was and is Your Son. His blood has washed away our sins. His work has made us once your enemies, now friends and your very children, by adoption and by new birth, we give you praise and thanks for such mercy and kindness and grace toward us, your people. And tonight as we encounter these verses, Lord, we ask for your help. Help to declare them. Help to receive what is declared. You'd be at work in our minds and hearts that we would know You. We have come to know You, but O Lord, it is our longing to know You more. We walk with You in a way that is joy to our hearts and pleasing in Your sight. And so may tonight's time where we encounter Your Word be for the edification of Your church. We are mindful that there are people who will hear me, who do not belong to You, and we ask, we ask, that You would have mercy upon them this evening, that, Lord, You would save. You saved us by grace alone. Lord, we know then that You're able to save them, and we ask that You would. We'll give You thanks for what You do. In Jesus' name, amen. All around Jesus, the wolves have gathered. We saw this morning how Meetings were being held, strategies being formed about how to take Jesus by stealth and kill Him. Chief priests, the elders of the people plotting together to take the life of the Son of God. That plotting is as near to Jesus as His own disciples. There is one in His company of men who by his own accord volunteered to betray Jesus. This is not something he was sought out for. This is something he sought out. He makes his way to the enemies of Jesus and offers to give them Jesus in a way that protects them from the riot that they feared. His lack of love for Jesus, his blindness to the majesty of Jesus, is on display in the price that he asks for his services, 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. This is the value that he placed on the life of Jesus. What motivated Judas? What motivated him to do this? Maybe you've heard over the years, some have wondered if perhaps Judas was trying to force the hand of Jesus. Some have, I think, in a way that is far too generous to Judas, they've imagined that somehow Judas was just trying to force the circumstances by which Jesus would stand up and sort of usher in his kingdom in response to the opposition. I don't think that's true, but that's what some have imagined. Some have thought, perhaps this is closer to reality, some have thought that it was bitterness, disillusionment that motivated Judas, that The longer this goes on, the more it becomes apparent to Judas that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah that he envisioned. Things are not taking place in the way that he thought they would. And then perhaps he was especially stung when he is rebuked by Jesus. The disciples are rebuked when they are scolding Mary over the beautiful act of worship that she performed when she poured out her precious perfume of the Lord Jesus Christ and Judas in hypocrisy voiced that this could have been given to the poor and he's rebuked for it. Maybe that was sort of the the straw that broke the camel's back and now Judas in vengeance goes to do harm to Jesus. Truth is, the Bible does not give us a motive. The Bible never tells us what motivated Judas to do this. The only clear motive that we have is money. We know he was already a thief. John told us that. Already stealing from the disciples' funds. So maybe from the human point of view, it's as simple as he was a man of greed. He just desired the money. We don't know. What we do know is that the Bible treats the Betrayer and the betrayal as something outrageous. Over and over again, the Bible refers to this in a way that indicates what an abomination that it was. Just from the standpoint of common betrayal, we understand what an ugly thing it is to betray someone. Sooner or later, most of us will be betrayed by someone. At some point, each one of us You live long enough. will experience the bitter fruit of disloyalty. Someone is disloyal to you when you have loved them. Someone is disloyal to you when you have been faithful to them. Someone is disloyal to you when you've been good to them. When you've trusted them. So just from our own common experience, we understand that betrayal is a great sin. But there's nothing more outrageous than the thought that someone has betrayed the Son of God. This is why the Bible describes Judas and his betrayal the way that it does, and you see it so many times. For example, when the list of the disciples is given in Matthew and Mark, Judas' betrayal is emphasized. Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and, his, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Matthew doesn't even get through the list without mentioning the fact that Judas betrayed Jesus. When Jesus awakened His sleeping disciples at the time of His rest, He uses the word betrayed, Matthew twenty-six forty-five. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. Remember, Christ has exhorted them to remain awake and to pray, but they keep falling asleep. And so He says, Take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Not just alerting them to the fact He's going to be arrested, but He's arrested as a result of betrayal. When Paul delivered instructions for the Lord's Supper to the Corinthian church, as he gives those instructions, Paul reminds that the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper on the night when He was betrayed. 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread doesn't just talk about establishing the Lord's Supper. talks about the fact that it was on the night when He was betrayed. Earlier in the ministry of Jesus, when, when He's talking about the fact that He's the bread come down from heaven and the need to embrace Him in a way that could be compared to eating His flesh and drinking His blood, and people are offended by the way that He's talking about Himself, and disciples are departing and leaving, even there... John is careful to tell us that Jesus already knows what Judas is. John 6, verse 60, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. Christ, fully aware of those who are not true believers, John singles out and makes clear that Jesus knew the one who was going to betray Him We saw this morning that when John writes about the pretended indignation of Judas over Mary's anointing of Jesus, he mentions the coming betrayal. John 12, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, now he goes to tell us what Judas said on that occasion, but he singles out the fact, the one who's about to betray him. John also tells us in John 13 that when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, the source, the spiritual source, apart from Judas's own sin, the spiritual instigator for what he was doing was the devil himself. In fact, Satan entered Judas. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, including the feet of the man, whom he knew would betray him. So over and over and over and over again, the Bible singles out the betrayal of Judas over and over again. This is put forth for what it really was, the most outrageous abomination that anyone can imagine. If betrayal among men is a heinous sin, what is it to betray someone who has loved you perfectly? I mean, this is disloyalty of the most grievous kind, a sin against the greatest privilege you've been granted access to life with the Son of God on earth, a sin against perfect love, a sin against perfect goodness, a sin against undeserved, patient trust, a sin against gracious warnings and opportunities to turn before the deed is committed against all of that in the face of All of that, Judas betrayed Jesus. And tonight we're going to see that Jesus warned Judas one last time. Before he goes out to commit this act that will destroy Judas, Jesus warns him, reminding us again that Jesus is not a victim, he is the victorious king, he is sovereign not taken unawares, not, not dragged to the cross. He's marching to the cross. Indeed, even though this is great evil on the part of Judas, this is God's plan for our salvation. This is exactly what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Human responsibility. You crucified and killed Him. Divine sovereignty. He was di- delivered up. That includes Judas' betrayal. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Not a victim, but the victor. This is what we understand when we look at the life of our Lord. And now we see this plan begin to move into action. Two main points tonight. The first one is this. I'm both... Celebrate and emphasize the sovereignty of Christ. The first one is this a sovereign preparation for the Last Supper. A sovereign preparation for the Last Supper. Look at verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm keeping the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Luke tells us that Jesus expressed a great desire for this moment. This is the last Passover that Jesus will observe before giving His life as our Passover lamb. He has observed this throughout His life like every Jewish man. He has observed this more than once with His own disciples, but this is the last time. And He is looking forward to this time and He is longing for this time because at this time He points them again to His death and to His future kingdom. Luke 22, verse 14, And when the hour came, He reclined at table, and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I've longed for this moment that precedes my death on your behalf. And I won't have it again until I celebrate with you in the kingdom of God. This would have taken place, the preparation, on Thursday afternoon heading into the evening. The meal itself passes into the evening, Friday, as the Jews accounted the days. Jesus will be arrested this very night, hurried through trials during the night to be sure that He'll be crucified On Friday prior to the Sabbath. I know you know this, but the Passover was a yearly commemoration prescribed by the law of Moses in remembrance of God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt through the final plague that he sent against the Egyptians, which was the death of the firstborn. And God gave instructions for the selection of a Passover lamb and the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, and the blood of that lamb was applied. To The doorposts of the believing households and those people were spared the plague. That's what the Passover commemorates and that's what Jesus is celebrating with these men. The Feast of Unleavened Bread joined to this was a reminder of how the Israelites had left Egypt in haste. Exodus twelve thirty three, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Exodus 12, 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So the Passover sacrifice and meal, or remembrance of how the people were delivered, the feast of unleavened bread that follows, the remembrance of how they left Egypt in haste with their dough unleavened because they were thrust out of Egypt. So just calling to mind God's deliverance of His people. What's amazing to think about is Jesus had celebrated His deliverance of Israel. Jesus is God, so it was God who delivered Israel out of Egypt. Jesus delivered Israel out of Egypt. But that work of deliverance prefigured His own work as Messiah, delivering all of His people by His blood. And now He's sitting down with His disciples at this table for the final time, ready to transform what they would partake of into the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, given to us, His people, to remember Him. This is why we partake of the Lord's table regularly, to remember Jesus. And it's in this close association, the Passover and the Lord's Supper. This is how Paul is able to write to the Corinthian church. As he exhorts them to purity, he writes this, 1 Corinthians 5-7, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so as we think about the Passover and we think about the deliverance of Israel, so our minds go to our Passover lamb. The fact that we've been cleansed of our sins, we really are unleavened. God means for us to link these things up in our understanding of His great and glorious salvation. Why do I say this is a sovereign preparation? Jesus is in charge here, isn't He? He's the one who has made prearrangement for these things. He's the one who tells His disciples, What to do? Why do I say it's a sovereign preparation? Well, because of his plans for the Last Supper. What he's going to do with respect to the Lord's Supper. Already talking about his suffering. Already talking about Luke 22. His kingdom that is coming. His sovereignty is on display here. But also, it seems you look at Mark and Luke's account of this, that perhaps there was also a display of omniscience that took place. As this Last supper was prepared. Luke 22 verse 8 says this, So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with My disciples, and He will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as He had told them, and they prepared the Passover. That, that, That sentence, and they went and found it just as He had told them, seems to point to the idea that this is amazing, that just as Jesus said that it would be, so it was. John MacArthur comments, probably part of his work, talking about the man carrying the water, which was not customary. Women carry these water jars, but there's a man carrying a a jar of water. MacArthur says, probably part of his work to prepare for the meal, normally carrying water was was woman's work, so a man carrying a pitcher would stand out. It is unlikely that the water pitcher was any sort of prearranged signal. Christ's knowledge of what the man would be doing at the precise moment the disciples arrived appears to be a manifestation of His divine omniscience. Close quote. I can't say that with certainty, but I tend to agree with that. Regardless, on display in this Last Supper is Christ's sovereign knowledge of what follows. And so He speaks of His suffering and He speaks of His coming kingdom. A sovereign Preparation for the Last Supper. But then the sovereignty of Jesus is on display immediately after it begins. Verse 19, And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, He said, Truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray Me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is going just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying Him, answered and said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You yourself said it. Where do we see the sovereignty of Christ here? First of all, He announces the betrayal in verse 21. Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me How does he know this? He knows this because he is the Son of God. That accomplished at least three things. His announcement of the betrayal. One, it makes clear that Jesus is not being duped. The one who's committing the act of sin is not wiser than the one who's being sinned against. Jesus knows exactly what is happening. Second, When the disciples call this to mind later on, it reminds them that Jesus was not caught off guard. He is not a victim. He is the victor. This is according to the plan of God. Christ is giving Himself over to this. He's being handed over, but not not apart from His own choice. No man takes his life. He lays it down. The fact that He's announcing before He's betrayed that He's being betrayed says... That this is something that he has chosen. Chosen to submit himself to. But third, the fact that he announces this serves as another opportunity for Judas to stop. To stop this wicked action. It says to Judas, you are not committing this sin under the cover of secrecy. It's not secret. What you're doing is is in the full light of the knowledge of Jesus. He knows exactly what you're doing, Judas. You're not hiding anything. This is known. And so here is your opportunity to stop before it's too late. Will you stop what you're doing? So Jesus, His sovereignty is on display in that He announces the betrayal. His sovereignty is also on display in that He captures the nature of this betrayal. He describes it for what it is. He exposes this sin by shining the light on the act itself. This is what you're doing. He describes it as the sin of a close companion. Verse 23, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Not the sin of a stranger. The sin of a friend. The sin of of one who shares in the meal. The sin of one who sits at the same table. The sin of one who has spent three years with Jesus. The sin of a close companion. According to a sovereign plan, according to the Scriptures, verse 24, The Son of Man is going just as it is written of Him. But woe to the man, that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. This will fulfill Scripture. The rejection and the crucifixion of the Messiah. This is attested to in the Old Testament Scriptures. What a sobering thing it must be to hear that what you've agreed to, you thought in secrecy, now your teacher... The rabbi, as Judas describes him, is telling you that what you have agreed to, not only does he know about it, you you are actually fulfilling Scripture. He's going to go to his death just as the Scriptures foretold. But woe to you who wickedly contribute to it. What Jesus is saying is this is not something that you have come up with that will catch me and others unaware. This is something that God revealed long beforehand wicked people would do to the Messiah and you are one of those people. In fact, you're playing the most despicable role in what is taking place. That's His sovereignty on display. Judas, this fulfills the Word of God. But third... He also announces the disaster that awaits the one who fulfills the Scriptures in terms of this betrayal. Verse 24, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Just because it fulfills the divine plan doesn't mean it won't be disastrous for the one who fulfills it. Indeed, the outcome will be so awful It would have been better for you to have never existed. You will wish you had never been born. So he announces the betrayal and then he explains the nature of the betrayal. The sin of a close friend, but one that fulfills Scripture and one that will prove disastrous for the one who fulfills Scripture in this way. But then He doesn't stop there. Verse 25, He identifies the betrayer. Does Jesus know who it is? Does Jesus know who it is? He knows betrayal is coming. But does He know who the betrayer is? Verse 25, all the disciples have been saying, surely not I, Lord. Verse 22, they're grieved. Which, by the way, speaks of the humility that salvation produces. They all consider the possibility it could be them. Surely not I. Surely not I, Lord. So much do they trust His words. They know it's going to take place. They're deeply grieved by it and their longing is that it would not be them. Surely not I, Lord. But the man who doesn't have that faith and doesn't know that humility pretends, feigns what he's hearing from the others he assumes the role of the other disciples. And in so doing, attempts to hide the fact that he is the one. I mean, if you don't respond the way they've responded, you've identified yourself. And so he answers and said, Surely not I, Rabbi. By the way, something interesting. Some have emphasized the fact that Judas uses the word rabbi here instead of Lord. Do you see in verse 22? Each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord? Judas says, Not I, Rabbi? You go through all the Gospel accounts, you're going to find all of the disciples at one point or another referring to Jesus as teacher or rabbi. Just the fact that he uses the word rabbi would not be significant. But here is what is significant. You never find Judas in the Gospels ever referring to Jesus as Lord. As rabbi, yes, as teacher, but not Lord. Surely not I, rabbi. Jesus says to him, you yourself said it. Which is a way of putting the onus on the person who just spoke the words. It just came out of your mouth, Judas. Or I think we could capture it this way. I don't know, Judas, is it you? I mean, you just asked, is it you? Are you the one? Judas, the great hypocrite, plays the hypocrite to the very end. He's been outed. He has to know it. And as I read this, I think to myself, Judas, why don't you just fall on your knees? Why don't you just weep over your disloyalty? Why don't you confess it to Jesus? Why don't you receive His forgiveness? He has proven Himself to be gracious and merciful and kind and patient over and over again. Why don't you just admit the truth and ask Him to forgive you? Why don't you allow... His sovereign knowledge, which is so clearly on display here, why don't you allow that to stop you in your track? Isn't it obvious he's the Son of God? But Judas chooses to be a pretender all the way to his grave, all the way to the end. Sovereign Jesus. Strong Jesus. A strong shepherd. His sovereignty on display as He prepares the Last Supper which He will transform and give us the Lord's Supper. Talking about His suffering in His future kingdom even as He enjoys this last meal with His men. Jesus, the strong, sovereign shepherd, reaching out with warning, having washed the feet of the one whom He warns, Judas, I know who you are. I know what you are. I know what you're doing. It is going to be disastrous for you. But Judas continues to pursue his course. Let me close tonight with just five observations. First of all, isn't it clear that divine sovereignty doesn't destroy human responsibility? God's sovereignty does not destroy your responsibility. The Gospel comes to us with a command to repent of our sins and to place our faith in God's Son. I can't think of a time where the Gospel is preached in a way that preached it and said, now, are you the elect? I can find where disciples are challenged to make their calling and election sure. But when the gospel goes forth to unbelievers, it is here is God's good news. Here is how God saves sinners. Repent and believe. And you will be saved. And so I want to ask you, have you ever obeyed the gospel? Have you ever repented of your sins and Believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because one day you will find that God's sovereignty will not excuse your unbelief. Even when a man is fulfilling the Scriptures with his sin. It would be better for that man if he had never been born. He is fully responsible for what he does. Which gets to the second observation. That is, divine love doesn't destroy divine justice. Jesus had a love for Judas. Jesus was the best friend Judas ever had. But Judas will stand before the justice of God and answer for what he did. Does God have a love for the whole world? He does. Will unbelieving men and women spend eternity in hell? They will. The love of God that is general in nature, the love of God that reflects His common grace will not rule out divine justice. A great day of judgment is on its way and the only place of safety the sinner has is standing in the finished, all-sufficient work of the Son of God. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have Him, you don't have life. But the wrath of God abides on you. Just as surely as the blood of the Passover lamb was the chosen means that God used to deliver and protect those who believed Him. So God upheld His justice in justifying sinners because the blood of His Son paid for every sin you and I ever committed and ever will commit. We have taken refuge in that finished work. We've taken refuge in that shed blood. Our only plea for our right standing before God is the blood of Christ. The death of the Son of God who answered for our sins and the righteousness of the Son of God that answers for our acceptance. Be convinced this is the only way you'll ever be delivered. People putting their confidence in some sort of general love of God for them. Oh, I think God is too loving to ever send anyone to hell. There will be a fearful awakening one day when they discover that divine love doesn't cancel divine justice. Rather, divine love has made the way, has provided the way to be delivered from the wrath of God. If you'll believe Him and receive what He's given for sinners. Third observation. Demonic deception doesn't destroy human evil. Demonic deception doesn't destroy human evil evil. The Bible tells us that the devil was at work in what Judas did. Luke 22 verse 2, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the, in the absence of a crowd. So that initial meeting, when Judas goes to meet with them to, to enter into this agreement, the Bible says Satan entered him. So there's a spiritual motivation, an instigator, in addition to Judas's own sinful nature. And then when he goes to execute the plan that he had agreed to, Satan is on the scene again. John 13, verse 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread, but I've dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And what sobering words these are from John, and it was night. Satan is at work, but Judas is evil. Satan is at work, but Judas is called a devil. Don't ever think that all your sin can be blamed on the evil one. Your need is for Christ. The devil, he he is a reality. Demons are a reality. But if you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand that since the fall of Adam, without the devil's activity at all, you are evil. You are evil. What he does is simply offer and fuel, provide ways to satisfy what the evil human heart is already drawn out to. And in that way, sort of greases the rails to your destruction. In fact, if you don't know Christ, you already belong to His domain under the ruler of this world, under the God of this age. Salvation is truly a miracle because when the Lord saves, He transfers from that domain into the kingdom of His Son. And you are set free from the domination and the slavery that you knew to sin and to Satan. And the evil one doesn't touch you anymore. Though sin is still in you and you grieve over your own sinfulness, you are fundamentally different, transformed at the very level of your nature. This is what salvation is. Demonic deception does not destroy human evil. Fourth observation, Jesus is not a weak victim. He is the strong, sovereign shepherd. I don't have to spend much time on that. We've talked about it all evening. But this needs to be so clear to our minds and hearts that there is our victorious king. There is our victorious savior. There is our victorious shepherd. The wolves have surrounded, but he doesn't run. He lays down his life for us, for his sheep to save us. Last observation. Pretending will never rescue a Judas. Pretending will never rescue a Judas. Surely not I, Rabbi. I say what the other disciples say. I feign the same attitude. I look the part. No one, no one in that group said, we know who it is. He had been entrusted with keeping their money. We look at it now and we think, oh, it's so clear, but it wasn't clear to them. And there is Judas with the voice of the Son of God ripping the cover off of what he had done and was about to do. And he chooses to pretend. And he loses his life and he loses his soul. Pretending will never rescue a Judas. Of course, it is not the same thing. But we do experience something similar to that in our day. How many times has someone sat in a worship service like this one and the Word of God so target their heart? It's as if they're the only person in the room. It's as if the preacher knows all your business. What do you do with those moments? Do you think it's just some human dynamic? a preacher with some sort of rhetoric, or do you recognize that the Spirit of God takes the sword of the Spirit of God and through weak vessels, the foolishness of preaching, puts His finger on human lives and calls you to repentance. Just as surely as Jesus warned Judas Sinners are being warned now. Whatever is not real, whatever is pretended, whatever will not stand the test of eternity, will you turn from that and trust in Christ genuinely? If you think that playing a part, that everyone else's belief in you will somehow rescue you, you will find you are eternally mistaken. It is the love of God, dear ones, that sets our sins before our sight and calls us to find our refuge in God's Son. That's the love of God. And so anyone who hasn't yet made Jesus your refuge, maybe you've pretended to. Maybe you play the role of a disciple. Maybe others think that you're saved. Maybe you keep contending that you're saved when all the fruit clearly says you are not? Would you stop pretending and turn from your sins and receive God's Son for life? When we look at this scene, are we not grateful for our strong, sovereign shepherd who laid down His life to save His sheep? Aren't you grateful? Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for the love of Jesus on display to the very end for all of his disciples, even the one who wasn't truly his disciple. A love that warned, a love that gave space and opportunity for repentance, a love that exposed the deed before it was committed, but sadly, Lord, a love that was ignored. I pray tonight for us, we who know Your Son, Lord, may we love Him all the more. May we turn from our sins at every point that we're aware of them and submit our lives to our Savior and King, striving at every step to live lives that please Him. Knowing we're accepted in Him, but Lord, as our Father, You're training us. And so Lord, wherever we need to grow wherever we need to change. May our hearts prove to be willing. I especially pray, Lord, for anyone in our midst who isn't really one of us. Your Word says they went out from us, but they were not of us. They were not all of us, for if they had been, they would have continued with us. Lord, no doubt, someone is hearing me who is with us, but not one of us. Would You put Your finger, Holy Spirit of God, on their heart tonight? And may they heed the loving voice of Your Son and be saved. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.